I wonder, um, as we read this passage, how many of you thought, that sounds exactly like how I feel right now. You walk in the street, and people seem run down and weary. On the, on the hamster wheel of the, the corporate world, just the general treadmill of life, day after day after day. And what for? Maybe we're not equally as pessimistic as the preacher sounds, but one month into this year, more of us than we might think are probably thinking something along the lines of, what is it all for? Was it all worth it? And it's not just other people, is it? At the beginning of a new year, we naturally look back at this past year and evaluate how things went. And I ask, what about all the hours that I put in at work? All those reports I produced that no one read, the presentations I gave, the expense claims I filed, and the emails I sent and received and sent and received. And no one in London really needs reminding of that relentless grind day after day, do we? Um, all the nights and weekends maybe you studied for those exams this last year. Uh, or all the times you picked up the children's toys and books and as soon as you turned around you needed to pick up more toys and books. We can probably go on. You can, you, you're probably filling out that list in your own head already. And maybe, you know, when we look back at this last year, or when we did that at the, at the end of last year, we decided, as we often do, this year is going to be better. Uh, I'm going to make changes. So we make New Year's resolutions. Uh, and sometimes when we do that, we have a vague, niggling feeling, I think, that come this time next year, we'll be sitting here again and have some of the same questions in mind. Was it all worth it? What is it all for? And apparently only something like 8% of New Year's resolutions are actually kept. Uh, 25% of them are broken by January the 8th, according to people who've looked at this. So if you're still going, you're probably heading for the minority. Well done. And we know from experience that January itself is a, is a hard month, this month that we've just come to the end of. It's cold, it's wet, it's back to work after the build-up to Christmas and you know, the excitement's worn off. And even when the best-made plans and intentions actually work out and we stick to them, if we're honest, it often just seems a bit flat, a bit the same. Like all of that effort never really brought us the kind of permanent gain that we needed to give us, that we were lied to by the promise of progress. And that's where Ecclesiastes comes in. The writer of Ecclesiastes gets it. He gets that feeling that we have in 2018 in London that very often things just seem 
to go on without any kind of lasting meaning. In the first part of chapter 1 that we didn't read, he describes the state of the world, how things work, uh, the sun coming up and hustling back down to the place where it sets, rivers flowing to the sea and flowing and flowing and flowing from their origins, generations come and go, and there's nothing new under the sun. That doesn't mean there's nothing that wasn't there before. I mean, we've got Twitter these days that we didn't have not that long ago. But people have always communicated with each other. So we sleep, we wake up, we eat, we work, we raise children, we communicate, we celebrate, we mourn, we make war, we make peace, we build up, we tear down. The way we do things change, but fundamentally human existence doesn't change that much, he tells us. And we look back at the same things we do every year and ask, what for? But then the problem is, what do we do about it? We make all kinds of plans to do more of the same. Uh, We make promises to ourselves. Um, Sometimes vague ideas of being better, being more devoted to Bible reading, exercising more, finding a new job. Maybe something more specific. Um, running a marathon or enrolling in that specific course or something along those lines. Uh, We want to change the sense that we've wasted our time by making more plans to do other things with our time. Now, don't hear me wrong. Planning and hard work and those things are are very good things, and we, we see that in this passage as well. Working hard isn't wrong. Making plans isn't wrong. And yet somehow, I think as if we're in a, in a B-grade TV sitcom, we're constantly surprised at how things work out. And we're forced to ask ourselves the same questions. Um, why? Why is that? I think part of the answer is because it's unsettling to ask those questions. Am I really focused on the right things? Um, is there really actually any kind of permanent gain out of the things I do? Um, the world tells us they should be. Um, and yet we find that reality is a bit different. And it, you know, this time of the year makes that kind of unsettled feeling probably even more acute than we care to admit. So let's face that feeling head on from this book of Ecclesiastes, which I think is a book that's perfect for a time like this. I think it's perfect for the times we live in, where loads of people are asking that question, where in a city like London, people struggle with that question all the time and run into the wrong answers to give meaning. Uh, David Gibson up in Aberdeen wrote in his book on his book Destiny on Ecclesiastes. He says, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live in the real world. And Ray Ortland, American pastor, wrote, if you're fed up with the disappointments and losses inescapably built into this life, there is a friend who understands Ecclesiastes. Um, or really, as a wise man I know once said, So without Ecclesiastes, we either have to lie to ourselves or give up. 
Now, who is this person speaking in this book? The preacher is probably someone modeled on King Solomon deliberately, someone who, because of the position he holds, is able to survey and make judgments about the wide array of human activities and life under him. And he feels what we feel today. He really does. And he's someone who's not insignificant by any standard. And yet he asks the same question, what is it all for? What does it all mean? He has those same fears that we struggle with today. And so he goes and he investigates. What is the answer? And he does that in three different areas. The first area that he looks at, um, chapter 1, verse 12 to 18, is everything which is done under the sun. He starts with a broad lens, a broad camera lens, and he looks at everything that is done under the sun. Is there some kind of meaning from this? And he looks at it and he says, it is all vanity. And a striving after wind. And he's become more wise, more knowledgeable than anybody before him. And so he's a, he's a, he's a credible commentator about life. Not like the political and sports talking heads we see on TV who talk a lot but have little to say. He is someone who knows what he's talking about. And as a king over many people, he's in a position to make these calls about human existence. And it's not encouraging. It's vanity and a striving after wind, verse 14. And again, verse 17, it's a striving after wind. He's surveyed madness and folly and wisdom. Nothing ex- escapes that judgment. It's a bit, it's a bit like that, that, that Greek myth, um, about Sisyphus, the king who was punished for being vain and self-promoting and crafty and deceitful. And he, he was forced to push a boulder up a hill, only to see it come down again and having to do that over and over for eternity. And knowing this makes, at least at first glance, according to the preacher, things worse. Verse 18, he says, In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Does that mean he's a cynic? Should we all just surrender and be cynical? Is the answer to give up and stop even trying? No, I don't think that is the case. He never says stop living your life, stop working hard, stop and withdraw from life or anything like that. He never takes that kind of a line, but he is realistic. He notices in verse 15 that there's much in life that is not right, out of sync, out of whack, out of joint, and we can't seem to get it back in order, straighten it out. There is something lacking fundamentally in the world around us, something missing, which we can't entirely capture, we can't count and measure and describe, and yet we know it's not there. And he realizes that even the best, least corrupted things are vanity and a striving after wind, something that's temporary, something elusive, a harsh taskmaster that doesn't deliver, a tyrant that keeps demanding more. So he's saying, stop pretending, stop pretending you can make things 
fundamentally better. Stop thinking politicians or anyone else will, will fix the world because they cannot. He says, accept the things, the fact that things aren't perfect in a fallen world. And at first glance, that makes things worse. But it's better than lying to ourselves and pretending that we can, through just working hard, fix things. Some consolation, um, but not much on our journey with the preacher so far in his investigations. So far, so bad. It's all still vanity. Secondly, he goes on to look at something more close to home. So he says, you know, if this high-level view of human life doesn't give the answer, maybe living the good life is the way to go. In chapter 12, or chapter 2, sorry, verses 1 to 11, um, he knows what it lives to live, to live the good life. Uh, what it is to live the good life. And he is a king with countless possessions, more than anyone before him. He's got houses and vineyards and gardens and parks, fruit trees and pools to water them from. Abundance, and if you think about it, in a desert. He's got slaves and livestock, silver, gold, singers, concubines. He has wine, women and song. And buildings and gardens and everything you could possibly want. In fact, that language of every kind of fruit tree in verse 5 calls to mind the Garden of Eden, in a sense. He has everything in this paradise of him. He is, in our terms, President of the United States, Mark Zuckerberg, Hollywood A-list celebrity. He is that hedge fund titan with a Mayfair townhouse who flies to his yacht in Monaco for the weekend. The top... Premier League footballer, all in one. He has it all. And his conclusions, verse 11, it's all vanity and a striving after wind. That's a, it's a, it's a beautiful expression, isn't it? Striving after wind. It captures so well what he's talking about. Not just running after wind, capturing it, not just galloping through the sun-kissed field in a musical montage like you see in movies. Deliberately, passionately striving after a goal, and the goal is wind. Do you get how ridiculous that sounds? Striving after wind? And that's the point. Because that's what we do when we strive after fleeting, temporary things or experiences day after day to give us meaning. The tyranny of the temporary continues. And that's probably a good time to talk about this word vanity that he uses time and time again. The, the Hebrew word is, is hevel, and some translations give it as meaningless. Um, you might have you know, learned this passage that way, that everything is meaningless. Uh, I don't think that's entirely right. I think in other places in the Bible, and you might have a footnote in your, in your, um, in your Bibles there as well, uh, it can mean breath or vapor, so something that's impermanent. Uh, it can mean even I- idols and idolatry in other places, or it can mean something that's, that's empty, that doesn't deliver on its promise. Now, we don't have time to go through every example in the book, but here's what I think he means with that word in this passage. He talks about things or situations which are vain, 
pointless in the sense of not achieving what we expect. Fleeting in the sense of being gone so soon. Um, Or absurd even in the sense of contradicting all reasonable expectation. So vanity is probably not a bad translation to capture all of that. A lot more in there than just just a a sense of vanity. Uh, But not inherently meaningless. Why? It's exactly because he thinks that life and the things in it has some kind of meaning that he's so upset at not finding any permanent gain. Like in verse 11 when he says, I considered all that I'd done. It was all vanity. And the striving after wind. Look at verse 10 though, just before that. For example, he says, and whatever my eyes decided, desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure or joy, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. The preacher enjoyed his labor. All his work, part of this living the good life, gave him joy. Building and acquiring and feasting and solving great problems like kings do. Like we do in our in our daily lives, working, solving problems, um, helping others, and it gave him joy. He did get a reward. He did get a portion in this life, but no permanent gain. And that makes it strangely more frustrating in a sense. Life has meaning, but not the ultimate meaning that he's looking for. And the question remains, why is it vanity and a striving after wind? Why are we still subject to this tyranny of temporary things? We don't get an answer yet in this part that we've read so far, but when we go to the next quest, we almost immediately start to see some of the reason coming out. Immediately, as he starts to look to wisdom itself, the subject of death comes up. So far, so much worse. Verse 12 to 17, chapter 2, he looks at wisdom itself. He says, if work and toil and labor isn't going to help and living the good life isn't the way to go, maybe just being wise is the right way to make sense of everything. See, our society values wisdom a lot, doesn't it? But it probably means in the society's understanding, something more like progressive tolerance. Anybody gets to do what they want. If that's your position, you're wise. You've been enlightened. More accurately, it probably means something more like liberal intolerance, something like you can do everything you want as long as it agrees with what I want or think. But that's a, that's a topic for another day. Um, In the Bible, there's more of a theological slant to wisdom, isn't there? A spiritual nature to it in in, in the Bible. It's Israel's wisdom that God gives to them over the other nations. Uh, God's wisdom himself, or even in Proverbs, wisdom personified. A kind of a Christological wisdom. And when the preacher talks about wisdom here, he talks about light and darkness And he's talking about wisdom in a spiritual sense. He's seeking godly wisdom. And it's not a human endeavor. And that's what makes what he now says so very shocking. 
There is a sense in which we can be busy with godly wisdom, with the church and the Bible, and it can be vanity. Something fleeting that misses the point. We can have all the wisdom in the world and be so busy with that, with that, that we forget, as far as our earthly lives are concerned, they are temporary things as well. See, in verse 13 we see there is gain. Remember in his previous quest there wasn't any gain yet. He's not saying these are bad things. It's an improvement. It is ultimately, it's fundamentally better than than not having wisdom. And yet, he says, even this gain has to reckon with death. We all die. I don't know if you've ever walked through a graveyard and looked at the gravestones and realized you can't even make out the names of the people who were buried there. That's a, that's a profoundly humbling experience. People who were wise lie next to people who are fools and no one knows. They're both forgotten so quickly. It's, it's absurd in the sense of vanity that he, that he uses. He, he, he talks about this and he says it is absurd. But he's not saying wisdom's worthless or meaningless. You know, he says it is incalculably better than being spiritually dead to have a spiritual life. As much as light is better than darkness. And yet, unless we face the fact that we will die and very soon no one will remember us, we can chase after wisdom for wisdom's sake, and even that is chasing after wind. If our perspective with regard to wisdom remains a perspective that looks to things under the sun, if we don't look beyond death to eternity, to the God of wisdom, even striving after godly wisdom can be vanity, missing the fundamental point. And verse 18 to 23 goes on to summarize this, all his quests, everything under the sun, the good life, wisdom, it's all vanity, it's all temporary under the sun. The tyranny of the temporary is making us striving after wind, chasing vanity. And the preacher makes us unashamedly face this fact. You see, he searched high and low and he realizes what the problem is. We're seeking ultimate meaning in the wrong place, under the sun. That is such a key phrase in this passage. And maybe we sitting here this morning think that's obvious. And yet, very often we need someone to state the blatantly obvious to us, to shock us out of that automatic mode that we slip into living our lives. He says... By focusing on the things under the sun, the things under the heavens in this passage, the preacher is doing us a favor. He's refocusing thinking. And nothing focuses the mind like death. Realizing the reality of death helps us get our perspective right. It helps us focus on eternity when we just focus on the here and now. It helps us lift our gaze to the heavens when we're fixated on the things under the sun. I said earlier that Ecclesiastes, without Ecclesiastes, we need to lie to ourselves or give up. 
he doesn't allow us to do either. How does he do that? Well, firstly, because he's so brutally honest about the state of affairs, and he tells us what is not vanity. Do you know, did you notice how he cuts through everything we prop up, good things we abuse, we try to give meaning to our lives and identity to our existence, work, promotion, possessions, joy and sorrow, status, our busyness, culture, entertainment, sex, even the church or wisdom. In a fallen world subject to frustration, there is no permanent gain, no permanent meaning from any of these things. So he doesn't let us lie to ourselves, but neither does he give up. He comes to this conclusion, verse 24 in chapter 2, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That is profoundly liberating. But that only makes sense when we get serious about death and surrendering our search for meaning to God. Otherwise, surrendering to enjoying our work, food and drink is just more vanity. But when we realize it is from the hand of God, it is worthwhile in and of itself. And from his pre-Jesus Christ limited perspective about God's plan, he senses even more than he realizes, I think. He's not cynical like people who often misquote these verses. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard these verses used. Oh, there's nothing we can do. It's just, you know, we must just enjoy our food and drink and labor and that's, that's all there is to life. That's not what he says. But in Christ we've seen so much more. Hasn't he shown us exactly how it looks to embrace an earthly life while having an eternal perspective? Isn't his sure knowledge that he was returning to his father with his many brothers and sisters, us, what sustained him through first living a human life, doing everything we consider vanity, and then giving up his life for you and me? Is that not a gift that God still gives us joy in the simple and complex things of life despite everything else? Because they're from him. Isn't that what gives things in this life meaning? Jesus said, whoever would save his life will still lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark 8. When Jesus died, he took away death's curse so that we don't have to. No, even more than that, so that we cannot live life as if this is all there is under the sun. We don't have to gain the world and forfeit our souls. So our horizon is now beyond the temporary things because we look to where Jesus has gone before us. There is no more tyranny of the temporary things. That is an incredible gift from God's hands, isn't it? Hasn't the huge problem, our sinful condition, since the beginning of time, been trying to get meaning from temporary things? Giving in to that tyranny? Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden? 
But there's more to it than that, and more even than the preacher realizes in this passage. Romans 8, 18 to 21 that we read earlier tells us why the world is subjected to futility, why things feel temporary and devoid of meaning and ultimate significance. I must read that again quickly. So, for I consider that the sufferings of the present times are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the cre- creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It is a gift from the hand of God that there is meaning and value and enjoyment in life because it is a gift from his hands. But isn't it, isn't it an incalculably greater gift, a greater thing from the hand of God that you mattered so much to him? He gave his son so that death won't have the final say about whether you matter or not. That not just the tyranny of the temporary over our lives will be broken, but that the world will be set free from bondage and decay. If you believe that Jesus died for you, is your name not eternally written in the book of life? That Jesus himself will open on the last day and welcome you into his father's home? You won't be forgotten, not like those gravestones. We don't have to lie to ourselves and we don't have to give up because we know the truth about life under the sun and life eternal and a God who gives meaning to both. So enjoy life with the smaller gifts day by day. As Paul says in Colossians 3.17, he said, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May we take those New Year's resolutions out of the drawer and ask yourself, am I seeking permanent meaning from these things? Are they temporary things having some kind of hold over me? Is my life focused on things that are are vanity and have no ultimate meaning? Imagine looking back at this last year, this time next year, and thinking, I've enjoyed life and the good things and the gifts from God's hands because he gave them to me and that is great joy and great meaning. Imagine a world where people live and think like that and don't constantly strive after meaningless and empty things. But don't forget to look forward. Lift your gaze above the things under the sun. Strive after eternity. Look forward to that eternal freedom and glorifying God as the source of all meaning and significance. Amen.